This is Religion and Theology, a podcast from the Center for Theology and Religious Studies. This is the third episode of the ongoing series on Heidegger and theology, in which Hans Ruin, professor of philosophy at Södertörn University, discusses Heidegger's interest in early Christianity and St. Paul in particular. In relation to the Black Notebooks, Professor Rien will argue that Heidegger's Paulinism is a particularly interesting and important source of Heidegger's thinking in general. I'm um, uh, grateful to James and to the Department of Theology here in Lund for organizing this event and um, uh, this invitation to me. Um, I was introduced to Heidegger a long time ago uh, through an introductory course on so-called existential phenomenology during my first year as a philosophy student in Stockholm. Uh, This was in the early 80s. Uh, I became fascinated by the small pieces by Heidegger that we read, and I started to study Sinon Sight on my own. Uh, And as I started looking for commentaries to this book in Swedish in the library, there was almost nothing to find. There was a single little booklet written in Swedish on Heidegger. Uh, It was written by Bengt-Erik Bengtsson, who for a time worked here in Europe in systematic theology. Uh, Among the Swedish philosophers, Heidegger was still then uh, completely anathema for both political and for philosophical reasons. His thinking had never been accepted as a thesis for a dissertation. It was instead in some of these theological circles that the reception had begun to take place, and notably here in Lund. Uh, Since then, much has happened, of course, around Heidegger, both in Sweden and abroad, and not least what concerns the question of his politics. Um, But for me, it's a certain symbolism involved in coming back to this place to discuss Heidegger, and in particular this issue. Uh, So thank you again. And uh, before uh, starting my... uh, presenting my written lecture, I must apologize, because I think lectures should not be longer than 45 minutes, which is usually the time that people have for concentrating. This is too long. Uh, I'm afraid I will speak a little more than an hour, so I just hope that I can uh, uh, keep your interest alive. Um, And um, I was even adding things, as you would hear, Uh, after having heard Peter yesterday, so it has expanded. Um, As I was pondering uh, what angle to choose for this presentation, I suggested to Jane that I would speak of Paul and of Heidegger's decisive confrontation with the Pauline letters in the early 20s. For a while, I've been uh, engaged myself in trying to read these letters and coming to terms with them philosophically. Um, And I've published a few essays on this uh, the last couple of years, uh, having to do with uh, the question of spirit, of sacrifice, and other Paulinian themes. Uh, This philosophical interest in Paul has, of course, been stimulated by the um, uh, great 
uh, boom, you could say, of interest in Paul among philosophers in the last two decades or so, uh, in authors as Badiou and Agamben and Chichek and many others. However, the principal and initial impulse for me to engage in this was the publication of the notes from Heidegger's lecture course 1920-1921 on the phenomenology of religious life that were referred to yesterday also, and that became available in 1995. Uh, this was around the time when I presented my, my, my own thesis. Uh, it's fascinating to read these lectures because in them, large parts of the existential analytic, uh, as it will eventually um, come into place in, in being and time, is actually articulated. Uh, no, most notably, the acute sense of the historical as a designation of factical and finite life in movement a life claimed by and forced to respond to its situation in the critical moment, in the augenblick, and focused in particular on how this existential temporality is articulated on the basis of what Paul has to say about the parousia of Christ, his arrival or second coming. My initial idea for this particular lecture, as it was expressed in my abstract, was to discuss the implication of the fact that Heidegger articulates this historical predicament of human existence from a reading of what he, and he was then following the standard formulation of his time, simply regarded as original or primitive Christianity, but that was in fact the voice and writing of a Jewish messianic reformer of ancient Judaism, deeply embedded in the prophetic literature. As Heidegger transforms the Pauline understanding of historical existence into a more general pattern for articulating the historical situatedness of human existence and thinking, he not only disconnects it from its Jewish background, but eventually he also erases its connection to Christianity, making it into a general pattern of interpreting man's relation to being as an historical category with the idea of a second beginning, an under Anfang, that emerges from around the time of Heidegger's partial withdrawal from public life in the mid-30s, the originally Pauline sense of history in response to the historical event of Christ is transposed into a general pattern for situating the predicament of human spirit in the wake of modernity, nihilism, and the encompassing reign of Gestell. In that sense, Heidegger's appropriation of Paul's understanding of what it means to inhabit a tradition in crisis would be another example of what Marlène Saradère pointed out in an excellent book from 1990 on Heidegger and the Hebraic inheritance, La dette impensée, the unthought debt, a study of Heidegger's repression of the Jewish spiritual roots of his own original thinking. Following the publication of the Schwarze Hefte, this line of critical interpretation has become even more pertinent and has already motivated several significant new interventions, notably from Donatella di Cesare. 
adding to this, however, and then moving beyond the horizon of Sarader and Cesare's argument, I was also intrigued by the possibility of incorporating into such a discussion the profoundly ambiguous nature of the Pauline theological legacy and to how it can be said to surface indirectly in Heidegger's own thinking. Paul is the inventor of the historical theological matrix that eventually produces Christian anti-Semitism. In simply stating this in such a blunt way, I'm not making a statement about guilt in this already too guilt-ridden history. I'm just referring to the historical textual facts, namely that it is Paul's letters that, uh, where the idea and the interpretation is first systematically articulated according to which ancient Judaism and its constitutive law marks a surpassed historical face in relation to what is instead to be its fulfilled messianic promise through the birth and sacrificial death of Christ. In short, when discussing Heidegger's appropriation of Paul in the context of his supposed anti-Judaism, and especially when doing so in the context of the philosophical-theological divide, we should also try to take into account the longer legacy of anti-Judaism that is part of the Pauline Christian legacy itself. To navigate in a precise and responsible way on this incendiary territory is very difficult. Yet it is a challenge that I think it is important to assume. It involves not only abstract questions of intellectual legacies and the proper handling of historical accounts, but also personal issues of sincerity, responsibility and basic human decency. As I was first thinking about this theme, I had not thought about Bultmann, of whom I had read very little up until recently, nor about Hans Jonas, with whose works on religion and theology I was not so familiar, having browsed through his book on Gnosis a long time ago and having studied only his book on responsibility. Again, and this is not the first time, it was Jane who put me on the track by suggesting that I should look at Jonas' 1964 essay on Heidegger and uh, uh, theology, to which uh, you referred and uh, spoke of yesterday. This text uh, triggered my interest again in trying to understand what had actually transpired between them and thus to become more acquainted with the significance for Heidegger, uh, of Heidegger for theology. This led me also finally to take the time to read the Heidegger-Bultmann correspondence that was published in 2009. Thus, over the course of the last month or so, a new picture and constellation started to emerge that captured my interest more and more and turned my initial ideas into somewhat unexpected direction toward this particular triad of thinkers, Heidegger, Bultmann and Jonas, as united by the common link of Paul. 
For I was made aware that it was not only Heidegger who at an early stage of his intellectual career found his philosophical voice and vocation in and through a reading of the Pauline letters. The first book published by Bultmann in 1910 at the age of 25 was also a study of Paul, uh, a rhetorical study of the letters in the context of the Greek genre of the diatribe. And it was also to Paul that Bultmann would return over the course of his life, even at decisive and critical moments, for an articulation of the life in faith which he himself sought to live. But also Hans Jonas started his academic career with a small book on Paul and Augustine, published in 1926 with a dedication to Bultmann but coming directly out of Heidegger's seminar that he had followed some years earlier. This is a book that antedates his more famous study of Gnosticism from 1934. And when the three of them were united again one last time after almost half a century and after the disasters that tore their world apart in the virtual form of the magnificent festschrift that was made for Bultmann on his 85th birthday. In 1970, Jonas's contribution to this book was a new essay on Paul, and more specifically on Romans 7. The Romans 7 that culminates in the line to which we will have reason to return here, But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead, wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So on the basis of this constellation of texts, I will present a reading that is meant to highlight some of the philosophical and theological stakes involved in these interpretive endeavors, but also connecting them in more personal terms. For in the end, the question provoked by the topic of Heidegger and antisemitism does have an irreducible personal existential comportment. We can discuss at length... uh, the increasingly obscure and arcane mathematics of the so-called history of being, of who and what is included and excluded. But at the end of the day, the question of how to assess Heidegger and his views in the relation to the question of Judaism also compels us to form a conception of the man and his actions in the face of an historical situation where he found himself and in response to which he acted and shaped his fate. For this purpose, the constellation with Bultmann and Jonas carries some particularly important lessons as we seek retrospectively to make sense of what actually took place in these convulsive and difficult times. My own teacher and advisor in Stockholm, Alexander Orlovsky, who first introduced me to Heidegger and who supervised my thesis, had a deep personal experience of the condition and mechanism of totalitarianism. 
as the sole survivor of a Jewish-Polish family under German occupation and as a citizen for many years of communist Soviet-occupied Poland, he always reminded us that it is easy to judge people's actions when you are located outside a totalitarian society. Under such circumstances, everyone has to make compromises. It is only by comparing similar people in similar situations that we can respect, uh, retrospectively hope to see some of what was indeed possible to do and what was not possible to do in this or that specific situ situation, thus forming the basis of a more fair judgment. It is our actions under concrete historical circumstances that reveal who we are as ethical beings, not our philosophical learnings and predilections. A bright mind can exist in a weak and vain character, and a solid character will not necessarily come with intellectual lucidity. Comparing Heidegger and Bultmann around the time of the National Socialist Revolution is an illuminating exercise in this respect. So what I will present here is thus a large, largely the result of fairly recent readings and reflections, and I presented with some hesitation in this group, speaking of theolo theology and exegetical issues in the company of many of you who are no doubt more experienced in working with this material than I am. But what I found uh, intrigued me so much, so I take the risk. Heidegger's early Freiburg lectures from the semester 1920-21 on the phenomenology of religious life is not only a remarkable piece of interpretive exegetical literature, it is, as many commentators have already pointed out, perhaps the true starting point of the adventure of existential analytics. It is here, in a discourse that comes to the Pauline text Equipped with neo-Kantian epistemology, with Husserlian phenomenology, with the existentialism of Nietzsche and Kierkegaard, that he fuses himself with the text of Paul, interpreting, appropriating the text, but also letting himself be read and appropriated by it. It is a blending of discourses, of phrases, words, and tonalities where Heidegger himself and his own critical voice partly in and through uh, merges uh, with Paul. Uh, it is uh, uh, here that he introduces the topic of so-called factical life experience and that he develops his detailed exegetical readings of the Pauline letters, notably Galatians and First Thessalonians, and which is then followed by the next semester of a reading of Augustine's Confessions. Uh, it is in these lectures on Paul that the basic form of the existential analytic, as it would emerge in Sinusite, is first developed. Through the theme of factical life and factical life experience, philosophy here reaches for the fundamental comportment of existence, where it lives in and through a relation with and commitment to its world. The opening pages of this course is a declaration of principle in regard to the dominant thought patterns of, of uh, his day. Um, 
From the first pages, Heidegger marks out his differences in regard to the liberal and neo-Kantian way of discussing religion, either in terms of psychological feeling or in terms of a priori moral categories or simply historical necessity. He criticizes Trunch. He even mentions Nathan Söderblom in passing as a representative of a supposedly naive sense of a rational syncretism. Against Trulch and the dominant trends of the science of religion, he argues for the need to approach the phenomenon of religion from a phenomenological standpoint in its facticity, not as an object of study, but as a mode of living, a mode of comportment and of making sense. The key concept through which he chooses to enable this new mode of access to the religious and subsequently to his reading of the Pauline text, is the notion of the historical, thus historische. And in the detailed explication of Paul's text that then follows, he reaches into new depths of the finite existential temporality as a situated life in uncertain expectancy. The Paul that emerges through this reading was not the conventional, dogmatic, Lutheran, doctrinary version that theology has had elicited from its readings of Romans in particular, but a life praxis, a mode of comportment in and from out of which all doctrinary conclusions must be elicited as a kind of secondary phenomenon. And this is also the core message of the interpretation. Before we can even begin to interpret Pauline Christian doctrine, we must try to grasp the fundamental existential comportment, the historical situatedness of the subjectivity that speaks in and through these texts. Heidegger repeatedly emphasizes that the phenomenological question of method is not a question of the appropriate methodological system, but it is one of access, of how to find the way into factical life experience. The phenomenology of religious life, he writes, should not be a theory about the religious, conceived as an object of study, but a way of entering in understanding the religious as a form of meaning fulfillment and enactment. It is from within this existential situation that Paul supposedly speaks to his congregation in the making. It is a discourse animated by a heightened sense of risk, a life without certainty, and in relation to which it is even more important to open oneself to hope, to wakefulness, to resolve. In this way, Heidegger orients himself towards what he takes to be the basic existential meaning of the Pauline discourse as characterized by a temporal horizon of the coming of Christ, of the parousia, not primarily understood in the context of a theological metaphysical dogma, but as an open horizon of lived meaning. At the heart of this philosophical interpretation of Christian Lutheran theology, is the particular temporal historical sense of living in a disjointed time, a time of wakefulness and resolve. It is a chirological time from the Greek kairos to which Paul also refers as the decisive moment, forging in this very text 
the metaphor of the blinking of an eye, the ripe of Talmo, which Kierkegaard and following him Heidegger uses in the German translation of the Augenblick. This is Paul's own word, metaphor, for the temporality of factical life. In response to such an historical predicament, one can no longer simply rely on one's tradition, for this tradition has come to its end, partly through a kind of inner self-corruption and self-forgetfulness. Thus it is necessary to dismantle its claim on us in the present and reopen the question of its possibility, its possibly more original levels of meaning. This experience of a cut or a cesura in the very fabric of history and tradition can be clearly sensed in Paul's own discourse, where we read repeatedly that the law in its old form has come to an end and that it is now time to live in and through the spirit. Heidegger's radical appropriation of the Pauline epistles merges at this point with his own sense of how the tradition of philosophy has reached an impasse and that there is a need of a destruction of the very legacy of the Western metaphysics, as we read in Sinonsite a few years later. There are multiple motives behind this drastic imagery of a destruction of the tradition of ontology, but it is again Paul who first states that in relation to the previous tradition, it must be destroyed. Whereas he literally says in Corinthians 10.4, I destroy buildings of thought. Logismos katairontes in the Latin translation, concilia destruentes. This sense of a crisis in tradition and the necessity of somehow starting anew also motivates the program of destruction in Heidegger's thinking, and it leads to a deepened sense of the urgency in interpreting and the cultivating of tradition that he also expresses and practices in his own critical readings from this time onward. It is a project that, it has, that is at once destructive, critical, and constructive, since its ultimate purpose is not negative, but positive. It seeks to retrieve lost and unthought possibilities in previous philosophical systems, and ultimately to access that very same tradition as for the first time. And perhaps most importantly, it outlines a conception of subjectivity that is not master of itself, but exposed in its historical finitude, open to the possibility of having to live awake and prepared without certitude. The impact of Heidegger's reading and hermeneutic mode of accessing the early Christian texts can be seen in the students that followed the course and in his friendship with Bultmann that followed directly upon his move to Marburg and his new position in 1924, so a few years later. The correspondence between them provides partial testimony of the deep sense of affinity that developed between them as they quickly moved from the polite see to the more intimate do the do of friendship that would last throughout their lives, also after long interruptions. 
Most of the letters between them are concerned with academic business, with forged and broken alliances, and much of it is simply private words of friendship. But between the lines, and in some of the letters, the deeper philosophical issues surface. Occasionally, uh, uh, sorry, uh, surfaces, as in a letter from March 29, 1927 where Heidegger describes them both as approaching Christianity from two very distinct positions, Bultmann from that of a specifically Christian ontic, Christian way of being, playing down the ontological, Heidegger himself saying that he has the ontological perspective for which the Christian ontic is relegated. Uh, this letter resonates with the main points of the only principal text that Heidegger ever writes on the topic of philosophy and theology. Uh, that was also <coughs> recalled yesterday by Peter. Written precisely around this time, and presented as a lecture on several occasions. Uh, when this text from 1927 on phenomenology and theology was republished again in a separate edition in 1970. It was with a dedication to Bultmann for lifelong friendship and sent to him. In this text, Heidegger stresses precisely the fundamental difference between the two modes of thinking, theology and phenomenology philosophy, locating theology among the positive sciences which philosophy does not belong to. Um, and the positivity of theology is life in faith. So theology has as its positive content the explication and understanding of life in faith. Um, in contrast, philosophy is a discipline that is concerned with being and in virtue of this preoccupation, it is clearly and even decisively distinct from any of the positive sciences, be they physics or theology. So the, the cut goes uh, there. Theology belongs to the positive sciences. Yet, at the same time, philosophy, in its phenomenological and hermeneutic form, has the ability, and perhaps even the responsibility, to explore and clarify the ontological concepts and the phenomena that underlie the concept used to articulate a life in faith. So philosophy has access to the conceptual apparatus, we could say, that theology must use in order to produce its own discourse as a positive explication of faith. So... To the legitimacy and meaning of this strict separation, of this double proximity and distance, maybe of a distance in proximity and the rationale behind its affirmation, we can perhaps return later in discussion, as it points, I think, partly to the core of, of our general topic. Yeah. Uh, but I leave it at that uh, for the moment. Uh, in 1932, Bultmann writes a new short essay on Paul, again on Romans 7, and the anthropology of Paul. 
I want to stop just for a moment to recapitulate a few points from this maybe somewhat marginal essay that nevertheless uh, points further to some of the decisive events in the year that follow. The main message is that Paul's anthropology is not a subjectivism, but one that must be understood on the basis of his historical existence, his Geschichtliches Sein, and you recognize, recognize Heidegger's uh, conceptual apparatus. Uh, man, Bultmann says, is not divided between a good and a pure spirit and a bad and corrupt body. But man is division, zwiespalt, where what is at stake is always his authenticity, his eigentlichkeit. The only salvation lies in the moment and how he lives the moment. Therefore, it is not a question of following the letter of the law, but to seek out its basic and underlying intuition, that which leads to life. In the end, man must, man must abandon himself to the address of God, the Anspruch. The same year, uh, on December 11th, 1932, Bultmann writes a long letter to Heidegger. A letter that gives us a glimpse, retrospectively, into the sentiments and political orientations of the two men at this critical moment of history. Initially, Bultmann describes in some detail his own works uh, on the concept of pistis and kerygma that he is preoccupied with at this time. Then suddenly, he poses the question, if it is indeed true, as some people have told him, that Heidegger has joined the party. He admits himself that he holds certain hopes for the movement, as he says. But as it develops into a party, he sees only corruption, a corruption that he already now sees is misleading the students into becoming local Führers. And he finds it very difficult to imagine Heidegger in the company of these people. Heidegger responds within a few days to this letter on December 16th. On the topic of his suspected party membership, he answers that I should be a member of the NSDAP? That is a smell from the latrines, as they say in the military. Ein Latrinengeruch. He admits that he has received several requests to join. And then he continues, I am not a member of this party. I will never be a member of this party, just as I was never a member of any party. Having made this declaration, however, he admits he is positive to certain aspects of the movement, but in the same way as Bultmann has already articulated. After this letter, there is no significant exchange uh, until June 33, six months later, in the meantime of which 
history has turned and the two men have made their choices. In April 33, Heidegger is elected as a new rector under the auspices of the new National Socialist regime as one of the most high-profile intellectuals to step forth as a representative of the new government. On May 27th, he presents his rectoral address where he speaks of the need for resolution of affirming a German destiny of the new great outbreak and the need for spiritual guidance and finally to affirm its rootedness in the great beginning of Greek philosophy. after this talk, he receives a letter from Bultmann. Bultmann has not received the text for the address, and it has not yet been published, but he's read uh, uh, transcripts of part of it in the newspaper. The tone of the letter is restrained, contorted, and troubled. Bultmann says that I myself, I lack the strength to affirm the movement in a similar way as you do. And he seeks his strength elsewhere, in their shared sources, he says, in Kierkegaard, in Nietzsche. He sees a present characterized by a hybris behind which he detects a hidden anxiety, a fedecten angst. His words of farewell resonate with both concern and estrangement. Considering what you now have to carry, he writes, and from my concern, if you have indeed chosen the right place and time to involve yourself, I send you my well wishes. After this letter, there are only occasional short messages, interrupted by a plea from Bultmann in 1935 to Heidegger to ask him to engage himself in a further attack on the university. And there's no preserved response from Heidegger to this uh, letter. Then suddenly there is a letter from Heidegger from October 39, where he declares... What is happening now is not history in the essential sense. That what takes place now is Machenschaft, just doings and business machinations. And maybe the closing of the university is not such a bad thing, considering that they are all groundless and without reflexive capacity, without Besinnung. Instead, he says, it all hinges on the capacity now to prepare what is coming after what is now through reflection on what endures durch die Besinnung auf das, was standhält. After this lonely and belated realization, there is no preserved contact between them until the mid-50s 
where the correspondence is resumed again, mostly in the form of polite greetings, but in the same friendly and intimate tone. In his response to Heidegger's surprising turn in the spring of 1933, and the choice to place his philosophy in support of national socialism, Bultmann speaks in convoluted terms, declaring his disappointment partly through indirect phrases. But earlier the same month that Heidegger gave his rectoral address, Bultmann had also addressed his students. In a smaller circle, but in, public, in a public space, speaking also of the task of the present, not the task of philosophy, but the task of theology, and in quite clear terms. The text with the title, The Aufgabe der Theologie in der gegenwärtigen Situation, so the task of, of theology in the present situation, was presented on May 2nd, so a few weeks before the rectoral address, and then printed later the same year uh, in a journal. Here, Bultmann also speaks of besinnung, of responsibility, and of the specific responsibility of theologians for developing the sense and meaning of Christian faith for our generation. In doing so, he too uses at times, even verbatim, the language of being in time and its analysis of facticity. For to understand God as creator, Bultmann says, does not mean that man is determined by eternal principles, but through the concrete situation of the moment, of the Augenblick. This means that we find ourselves in our situation. In this situation, the belief in God and the sense of the people, of the Volkstum, can stand in a positive relation, even in a destinal community, a Gemeinschaft des Schicksals. God is not imminent in the world. He occupies a distance, the same distance that Paul articulates when he speaks of the Hosmer, the as if not. And Bultmann cites 1 Corinthians, arguing that faith is not a negative relation to the world, but a positive attitude that can nevertheless be critical. From its perspective, it can see how man always wants to control and rule over creation, and that he forgets that he is created, mistaking himself for its creator, thus making himself guilty of sin. This declaration is then followed by the open uh, statement that no state and no nation is so pure as to allow itself to take its will directly from God. From every people can arise both beauty and nobility, but from every people it is also possible uh, that the demonic and the sinful can erupt. From Christian faith and from the Pauline message, it should thus be possible to draw a critical force that can preserve a living reflection, a besinnung, that can find a sense of love through the experience of grace. 
and he mentions in very clear terms what he sees as the problems and the risks of his time, the denunciations, the defamations, the repression of free speech. And then, at the very end, he speaks out in no ambiguous terms. I must, as a Christian, deplore the injustice done to the German Jews through such defamations. This is also what could be said in this particular moment, in May 1933, on the basis of the same, the almost identical matrix of thought that Heidegger would use a few weeks later in support of the National Socialist Revolution. From Hans Jonas' obituary for Bultmann from 1976 uh, that Jane pointed out to me just the other week, we have another glimpse of the man Bultmann from this same period. Jonas uh, does not mention uh, any experience of the May lecture, but he recalls with lucid and deeply moving words how he came to see Bultmann and his family one last time that same summer in 1933, being the only friend that he paid a visit before leaving uh, Germany for good. And uh, he recalls how Bultmann, in response to, uh, to Jonas' reaction of how the Jews were... <laughs> Jane knows this because she, this is a very moving passage and that's, it's been quoted many times, but it's... Um, so sorry. Um, he recalls how... how um, uh, Bultmann reacts when he himself describes how the Jews are now even being excluded from the societies of the blind. And Jonas describes how over the face of Bultmann a deathly pallor had spread and how he at that moment immediately understood that in matters of elementary humanity one could simply rely on Bultmann. To this anecdote, he adds the story, which is also a sad and beautiful story, of how he, upon his return to Germany after the capitulation, dressed in British military gear, came unannounced to visit the Bultmanns after uh, 12 years, uh, and how he was greeted with words and tears. And the immediate question, he had a book under his arm, was, is it indeed the second volume of Gnosis that you are carrying with you? And he describes this meeting uh, with the Bultmann family as having restored to him the sense of the possibility of the constancy of thought and the loving interest across the ruin of a world. Sorry about the. Um, um, Heidegger's continued work and development 
from the mid-30s onward up until the end of the war is a remarkable and almost unfathomable story in itself on which many conferences could be organized. This time is that of the great Ausein Andersetzung with Nietzsche, the two volumes from which were published in the early 60s that have provoked a whole new chapter in the reception of Nietzsche's work. It is the time of his great work on Greek philosophy, on German idealism. It is the time where he tries to forge a new philosophical, non-positing, non-objectifying discourse, man most clearly manifested in the Beiträge zur Philosophie from 1938, and also the ensuing volumes from this period. It is a period of such extraordinary productivity, a laboratory of thought that has kept his interpreters busy for more than a century. And last but not least, it is the time of his profound engagement with Hölderlin. We heard yesterday Peter speak at length uh, of the kind of thought patterns that Heidegger develops during these years, how he sees his entire civilization as doomed by machination, nihilism, calculative thinking, and how he places his hopes in Hölderlin and the possibility of a second beginning in relation to the first Greek beginning, a kind of mythic poetical return uh, to something that was lost or betrayed along the way. This is accompanied, as Peter also showed, with an increasingly sharp criticism of Christianity, of the church and of Judaism, which here blend into one historical entity, a kind of historical fall from grace or betrayal that thinking should somehow seek to repair. In the previously published text on this topic, and notably the Beiträge zur Philosophie, there is almost no mention of Christianity and Judaism. The second beginning, the andere Anfang, is here articulated in relation to a Greek first beginning, and with no mention of any other, any exterior. It is only in the now recently published and clandestine text uh, of the Schwarze Hefte that this other of, his, of, of Heidegger's cultural revolution is mentioned by name. And as Peter also mentioned yesterday, a significant inspiration for this diagnosis and its cure is of course Nietzsche, whose analysis of nihilism takes its starting point in the historical invention of monotheism and a world defined in moral terms, an ethical metaphysics. I think if we are to locate the immediate overall intellectual matrix within which Heidegger's discourse operate during these years, it should be situated and possibly understood in the context of this Nietzschean critique of Jewish-Christian religion combined with Helderlinian hopes for a deeper unification with a lost Greek origin. But it is not a return in the naive sense of maybe the earlier generation of classicists who simply thought that we should return to the classical Greece. Because the ancient world is gone, and it will not return. What awaits us as our challenge is the possibility of beginning anew, of being ourselves a beginning, a second beginning. This is verbatim the formulation that we find in the darkest, most 
shocking quotation from the Schwarze Hefte from 1942, the paragraph that also includes the statement that what is happening now is the self-annihilation, the Selbstvernichtung of the Jews. As the German state has opted for the final solution, murder on industrial scale, as its solution to the so-called Jewish problem, Heidegger, sitting alone, all his Jewish colleagues, teachers, friends, long gone, concluding that the Jews are now murdering themselves. The sheer horror of this remark repels us from interpreting it, and yet it has, from the viewpoint of the conceptual castle that he has built for himself, an inner consistency and logic. For if nihilism, the emptying of all values, the transformation of the world into one great machination and device of power and control, is the belated effect of Christian metaphysics, with Christianity being the extension of Judaism, well, then what is happening out in the streets, in the industrial factories of death, are Jews killing Jews. The world has become one great device of mechanization of power, and all we can hope for is another beginning. So what can we do? Well, he says, we should try to not to write histories of the West, but instead we should try to be Western, Abendlandish, which he then specifies as Anfänglichkeit and Anfang, Anfangen lassen, to let the beginning begin in a more beginning-wise way. And this should be take place, he says explicitly, äußerhalb des Judentum und das heißt des Christendum. So this should take place outside or beyond Judaism and Christianity. Yesterday, Jane asked Peter the question, if Bultmann was ever aware of where Heidegger was going in his mind and thinking during these dark years. And for what he's, we know, he was uh, not aware. Uh, his criticism of Christianity and the church was not made vocal. What would Bultmann have said? Would their friendship have survived the knowledge of where his thinking had taken him? In 1941, a year before, Bultmann himself had given another critical sermon cited in the recently published anthology of German Lutheran resistance where he spoke out against what was happening to the church uh, and uh, trying to mobilize again uh, Christianity as a potential source of resistance. And in this sermon he notes that the churches are now destroyed, declaring finally Germany is no longer a Christian nation. For Bultmann, his Christianity and his faith and his never-failing reliance in a fundamentally Paulinian spirituality seemed to have served him during these dark years and given him the resources to resist, at least in himself and in his proximity, the ongoing destruction of humanity. For him, 
The Pauline message was one of love and care of the other through grace that took him through these years of increasing isolation and despair. But Heidegger too despaired about the present. From approximately 1935 onward, it is very clear, and even more so with the publication of the Schwarze Hefte, that he saw himself as an oppositional, no longer a national socialist. The letter from 1939 to Bultmann that I just quoted, the last before the long silence, may even have involved a certain risk in sending it, clearly shows him taking his distance to what is happening. But whereas Bultmann finds spiritual support in the Pauline text, Heidegger openly, or at least to himself, rejects the entire spiritual legacy of Paul and Judaism. Yet we cannot refrain from stating again the question with which I began, namely from where does Heidegger draw his hopes in this second and other beginning? It is stated that this is a Greek beginning and that it's supposedly returning directly to that particular promise. But what does it mean to read history, to interpret and decipher history as the possibility of a return of a beginning? From where does such a figure of thought even appear? Certainly not in any Greek sources, where such modes of temporality and historical promise is not to be found. If we are not perhaps to look in Pythagorean and Platonic ideas of metempsychosis, transmigration of souls. No, it is the Jewish prophetic literature and most radically expressed in Paul that gives the very shape of history to which Heidegger here places his hopes for the future. It is Paul who forges the imagery of history as the inner death of a tradition and the possibility of a new birth, a second beginning, a new and second covenant. It seems to me impossible not to see Heidegger's radical and distorted apocalyptic ruminations during these years as also animated by precisely the tradition that he, according to a perverse logic of repression, refuses to recognize as even belonging to the history of being, or belonging precisely to that history of being, the form in which is inconceivable without this messianic and chirological sense of time as articulated in the Pauline letters and this is not only valid for the basic form of his messianic historical schema it is also true of the ethical and ontological orientation of his thinking from the mid 30s onward where he begins to distance himself from a philosophy of subjectivity of will, of power of control, opting instead for the primacy of hearing of belonging, of being addressed of the arrivedness and the experience of the unpredictable happening, but where Where, again, if not in the prophetic and Pauline literature, do we find these tropes? It was not incidental that the theologians were and continued to be attracted to Heidegger's thinking because it remains, as Jane recalled, firmly situated within a discursive, effective, and dare we even say ontological context of the prophetic literature. 
So how can we make sense of this situation? How we both see Heidegger moving more deeply into the reservoirs of Jewish spirituality while openly denying the significance of this very same heritage, indeed while openly siding with the most brutal expression of its expulsion. Or is this also a Pauline inheritance? Is Heidegger's anti-Semitism itself an extension of a Jewish anti-Jewishness, of a certain reversal in the very thinking of the Jewish tradition itself, in its most strange appearance? Or are we moving too quickly here? I serve it and I return shortly to this uh, provocation. I have already spoken long, but I have just one more um, important uh, point and section to present to you. It's a text uh, that I want to revisit, without which this long preparation um, would, uh, would not find its full purpose. Um, I'm thinking of a text that I mentioned at the outset, uh, the es another essay on Paul, again on Romans 7, that Hans Jonas composes as his contribution for Bultmann's Festschrift in 1970. The title of this essay, as it was later pu uh, published later, uh, some years later, um, in an English version in, in Jonas's own collection of essays, is The Abyss of the Will. Uh, it's a short essay, not even 15 pages, but over these pages it concentrates a personal, philosophical, theological, but also historical drama, um, even perhaps beyond what Jonas himself could be able to see. It opens again with an expression of personal gratitude to Bultmann for his friendship during times, as Jonas writes, the target is clear. Many other bonds were broken and irretrievably lost in the dark abyss of our time. He then recapitulates what it was he himself wanted to do back then in his youth, around 1930, namely an existential analysis of the Pauline self-experience as it finds its expression in Romans 7. The formulation was the heart of the Pelagian struggle concerning the freedom of the will that also involved Augustine. It is in Paul, he says, that we should look for the heart of this matter. As he speaks, not historically to a specific contingent group, but how his expression of the failure of the law holds both for pagans and Christians no less uh, than for the Jews. So to articulate an existential reading of this problematic of the will, that was his, the topic, he says, of my earlier work. Now he wants to try out the idea, if there is a primal sin, as discussed by Paul and Augustine, as something that is inevitably committed and constantly renewed, something that is rooted in the movement of the human will. 
If this is the case, then it should be uh, it should be sought in the experience of an insufficiency that springs from the ontology of human existence as such, an insufficiency in the ontology of human existence. For only on this condition, Jonas writes, do the Pauline statement have the validity they claim. In other words, only if we are able to translate back Paul's theological message into a comprehensible existential form can it carry its full message. And then he cites again the full passage of Romans, ending with the lines that I read before. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the latter. All thinking, all acting, Jonas says, is reflexive. As humans, we know that we think, we know that we will. Volume Vele. The will, he writes, is a priori always there underlying all single acts of the soul. The will which performs this permanent decision, or rather which exists as its performance, is nothing other than the fundamental mode of being of Dasein. In brief, he adds, will signifies what Heidegger explicates under the name of care, of Zage. And ultimately, all phenomena of morality, freedom, choice, responsibility, conscience of guilt are said to be rooted in this primordial reflexiveness. Its a priori presence is the ontological basis for freedom. This apparently innocent gesture to bring in Heidegger's existential conceptuality for an exegetical cause, on one level it's trivial. By that time it had been done many, many times, in theology, in literature, in anthropology. But here the stakes are different. Here the stakes are very high. It is Hans Jonas, the American philosopher, the uncompromising Zionist warrior, who, returning to Germany to pay tribute to his Lutheran teacher through a reading of Paul, through a reading of Romans, with the purpose of providing the universal existential validity of its message, who at that very moment again leaves the word to Heidegger, without whose thinking this interpretative exercise would be unfeasible. But we are not yet at the core of the argument. More is to come. For in order to show the existential validity of Paul's thinking, we must also account for the necessary failure of freedom, its inevitable ensnarement of itself. The freedom of the will must also be the unfreedom of the will. If the insufficient thesis would not only be, as Nietzsche had argued, a mere slander of man, the will has the capacity to step back and objectify and subjugate the world, but in doing so, it ultimately also objectifies itself. The will makes itself into its own object. However, in doing so, it forsakes the inner humility of itself. It replaces its unmediated creatureliness for the pride of mediacy in relation to oneself. 
the will leaves its spontaneous willing of itself and makes itself the object of its willing. And it begins to side glance, comparing itself with others. Instead of living the act, it becomes the observable actor. And then Jonas asks the rhetorical question, shouldn't this be at least one meaning, perhaps the minimal as well as the fundamental meaning of the Pauline concept of self-glorying in one's work? And I presume he's referring to 1 Corinthians uh, here. Uh, The point is that this self-glorying objectification of oneself is a trap that freedom sets for itself. It is even said to be caused by a law that is not external but internal, not heteronomous but autonomous in Kant's words. For to break the self-mirroring of the subject in relation to itself, it must be contained, the will must pause itself, it must see itself in its inner insufficiency. For Kant, the ethical solution lies in autonomy, a will that refuses all external adaption and that only wills itself. But even in this understanding of the problem, there is a risk. For in the thought of pure Kantian autonomy, this pure inwardness produces for itself, through self-objectification, I am the will that wills myself and my own law. It takes pride in its own ability to be the law. And this is no less corrupting than when the will counts on return from outside being rewarded by God. Possibly more, since this Enjoyment in its own lawfulness can be enjoyed without delay in the very performance of the act. Do you see what he is saying here? Jonas is basically accusing Kantian morality for leaving the way for a kind of hybris, a kind of vanity, a will that relishes in its own ability to will itself. And in its place, he puts the deeper dichotomy of the authentic and the inauthentic as a way to describe the basic existential antinomy of the moral reality as such. Putting it in brief terms, he adds, the antinomy means that under the condition of human ambiguity, the attempt at holiness of will condemns itself to an unholy will. And he ends the exposition as follows. It is my opinion that this antinomy stands behind the despair of the Pauline self-description. The gesture is again, as I hope if you can still um, follow, it's monumental. What Jonas is doing is to celebrate his Lutheran Kantian teacher by disparaging Kant and the ethics of enlightenment with the help of the tools that he has obtained from his national socialist philosophy teacher, who is the only one who can help him properly read the Jewish existential thinker Paul, who himself is an arch-architect of anti-Judaism, and yet the first who was able to truly articulate the fundamentally ethical in man. In this moment, 
what we normally take for granted and as stable, trembles. And yet there is a deeper consistency in all of this. And this is what this extremely complicated situation forces us to think. We should not fail to remember that it was precisely this vanity of the will that the Pauline Bultmann accused Heidegger of having succumbed to in his rectoral address. And it was this hybris of the will, the will to power, the will to will, that Heidegger himself would place in question as he withdrew after his turning in the mid-30s, and that he would repeat again in his letter on humanism after the war, that also marks a refusal of Kantian ethics. Indeed, it was to his Pauline, Lutheran, and dare we now say, Jewish intellectual roots that Heidegger too returned in a desperate and in the end historically confused attempt to find a way out of nihilism and machination, arguing that it would be possible to invent a new on the basis of a purified Greek inheritance, explicitly without connection to the Jewish Christian inheritance that had once permitted him even to articulate these thoughts. In Jonas's reading, Jesus is the one who exposes the bad piety of the law, whereas Paul strikes at all piety of the law. Jesus condemns from without a false and, and a corrupt attitude. Paul, on the other hand, describes from within a true and unavoidable experience. In Jonas's reading, Paul has seen through not only the bad Pharisee, but also the good Pharisee, the one who says, I know the law, I have the law, I take pride in being the caretaker of the law. That is why he has to be led to the experience of the deeper dialectic of standing under, as Paul writes, condition under the law. The Pharisee has not yet found grace, for he has not recognized that he is a sinner also for and under the law. What Jesus takes into consideration is the lowest form of legality, the hypocritical inability to really live the law. What Paul does, however, is to seek out the highest mode of law piety for his critical object by pointing out an inner difference in the very existential premise and by showing that we cannot will ourselves as lawful we must recognize our inner finitude also before the law. Do you see what this means? It means that Jesus is Kant, Paul is Heidegger, and it is Heidegger who gets the last word, as the one who has seen, seen through the inner disunity of the subject before the law. Of the two, Paul is the deeper thinker, a deeper thinker than Christ, a deeper Jewish thinker. Yet, Jonas adds, the death of Christ on the cross has no rightful place in Jesus' own message. From Christ's perspective, all men have immediate access to God and to a genuine being before him so long as they hear and heed his call. And this statement, Jonas adds, only reiterates the old disputed proposition that Paul's message about Jesus as the crucified Christ signifies a decisive step beyond Jesus' own message. 
a step through which the paths of the old creed and the new creed really part. So to make this as clear as possible, Paul is the deeper existential thinker, but through his unwarranted historical metaphysical interpretation of the contingent death and crucifixion of Christ on the cross, he has passed beyond his means. Indeed, he has gone beyond the tradition of deep ethical wisdom that has made his message possible. Jonas does not make this conclusion himself. Maybe he doesn't even see it, and he was not aware of where Heidegger, how far Heidegger has gone during those dark years. But through this last gesture, it is as if he's also summarized Heidegger and his own strange trajectory. The Paulinian Heidegger has a philosophical anthropology that runs deeper than the Jesus-like Kant, a figure to whom also Bultmann belongs, if we read the obituary where Jonas ultimately accuses Bultmann of being too Kantian. Yet, in his attempt to break away from the historical metaphysical chiasm, in other words, through his transformation and reversal of the history, where there is no longer any place for Judaism, and where life on earth should somehow begin anew, in this gesture by Heidegger that repeats the origin of the tradition, he has committed an unjustified gesture also in relation to his own background as well as in relation to his own deepest thought. But also this gesture is prepared in Paul, indeed in the Jewish thinker, messianic thinker Paul, at the point where it transforms its own deepest thought into a self-glorifying metaphysics where it transforms the contingent death of its ethical hero into a world historical and redemptive drama that divides again humanity in a before and an after, producing the exclusion of itself. We are indeed on contested territory. Thank you.